0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. If you, uh, if you would encourage you, just to, you know, whether you're at home or here, to do bring your Bible. I think it's, it can be good for you to uh, be looking uh, along as we, as we walk through our study. If you're just joining us today, we have been uh, walking through the last book of the Bible, uh, the Revelation, and uh, today we come to chapter 6 in our study. So I invite you to open up to chapter six earlier this year uh, I read a book some of you perhaps have read it by Richard Wormbrand. Uh, his book is entitled tortured for Christ Wormbrand was born in 1909 in uh, Bucharest Romania he was the youngest son of four boys orphaned or his, he lost his father at age nine his childhood was characterized by poverty he lived through uh, all that came with uh, World War I happening in that part of the world. As an adolescent, he was sent to, uh, to study Marxism in Moscow. And by the age of 14, Wormbrand was an uh, avowed, convinced atheist, very bitter towards religion. But in 1938, at age 27, uh, through the testimony, the witness of a Christian carpenter, both he and his wife of two years, Sabina, came to faith in Jesus. They uh, heard the gospel, they, they put their trust in Jesus and their lives were transformed. Wurmbrand began a ministry both to fellow Romanians and to Soviet soldiers who were occupying Romania. And when the Soviets intensified their desire, their effort to control the church, Wormbrand shifted his ministry to, uh, to ministering underground to the church, to the believers uh, in his country. The following years, uh, he was imprisoned twice, the first time in 1948, for eight and a half years. He was released in time and was warned not to preach, an order he ignored. He resumed his ministry to the underground church, and three years later, in 1959, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. During his imprisonment, Ormbrand was Uh, endured beatings and other forms of torture. His story, his book, as I read it, he wrote it within the first three days of finally being released. Uh, It it includes descriptions of both the things that he endured and also the things that he witnessed other believers in prison enduring. It, It was a deeply disturbing book to read. In fact, there were nights where I had to stop I was so overwhelmed with the, the wickedness of, of what human beings can inflict on others. I had trouble sleeping. It's, it's, not, it's not bedtime reading. As I read, I found myself over and over crying out to God, Why? Why, God? This morning... We come to a place in our study of the Revelation, we, we come to a difficult passage. Not difficult so much because it's hard to understand, though there are some difficulties in it of that nature. But difficult because of what we hear. Difficult because of the message that we encounter. It's, it's not what we want to hear. It's, it's not easy to hear. But it is nonetheless the message of this text. It is what Jesus says to us this morning. It is the truth about the story we are in. Now, before we turn to the text, there are some contextual matters about which I want to remind you. This book is literally titled The Unveiling, The Revelation. It is from Jesus. It is about Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in these pages, pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we as his followers can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true. There is more going on than we perceive with our physical eyes. The year is 96 A.D. John, disciple of Jesus, now in his mid-80s, an old man, has been deposited by the emperor of Rome on the rocky island of Patmos, 40 miles off the coast of present-day Turkey. On the Lord's Day, in the spirit, John is worshiping, and suddenly he hears a loud voice behind him, a voice like a trumpet, and he turns to see the voice, and there before him he beholds the glorious and exalted resurrected Jesus whom he had followed. John falls down before Jesus as though dead. Jesus reaches out his right hand and he touches him and he says to John, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And then Jesus commissions John to write down what he sees and to send it to the churches. In, in chapters 2 and 3, we read those messages. Messages from Jesus to seven churches scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia, modern-day Turkey. In each of those messages, Jesus speaks to the churches. He gives these messages to them to prepare them, to warn them, to encourage them, to prepare them, because a great crisis looms on the horizon. And he wants them to be ready for what is about to happen. Following those letters, we returned to John's vision. Chapters 4 and 5, the same voice that we heard in chapter 1, the same verse that John heard, speaks to John again. Come up here. And John sees in heaven an open door, and he's swept up by the Spirit, and he looks through that door. In chapter 4 and and chapter 5, recount for us a description of what John saw. Uh, two scenes of this unfolding drama, if you will. Chapter 4 reveals, John looks through the door and he sees a throne, a, a throne and one who is sitting on the throne, who is radiating glory and power and majesty. And he sees around the throne four angelic beings, four living creatures, 24 elders representing the people of God, and they worship God, the one who sits on the throne, the throne that is above every other throne. Chapter 5, the vision continues. We looked at chapter 5 last week. John looks and he sees in the hand of the one who sits upon that throne that is above every other throne a scroll. A scroll that has writing on both sides. A scroll that is sealed with seven seals. A scroll that contains all of God's purposes for judgment and blessing. The scroll is sealed and no one is found who is worthy to open it. And so in the drama of Revelation, if it can't be opened, God's purposes can't be brought to completion. And so John weeps. He weeps until one of the 24 elders says, John, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. He is he is triumphant. He is worthy to, to open the seals. And so John looks, and we would expect that he would see this lion of Judah, this mighty beast who has been triumphant, and instead he sees a lamb who... Has been slain. The lion is the lamb. He sees Christ who won, who triumphed through his death. And in response, all of heaven, indeed the whole cosmos, explodes in worship, worshiping the one who sits upon the throne and the lamb who was slain. Now, as we move forward in the revelation, we must remember these two things. That God Almighty, the creator of all things, who is glorious and powerful and awesome, that he sits upon the throne that is above every other throne. And secondly, that Jesus Christ, the slain lamb, is worthy to bring to fulfillment all of God's purposes in judgment and blessing. No matter what we encounter the rest of the way through the revelation, we must remember these two things. We must hold these two truths. This morning we come to the next portion of the Revelation, the next part of this unfolding drama. Our passage carries on on the heels of what we came to last week. I invite you to follow along as I read Revelation 6, 1-17. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sound, sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer, until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out... uh, they called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? I want to, as we explore this passage, I want to ask three questions. First, how should we approach this chapter? Second, how should we understand the images It contains, and third, how should we respond to its message? First, how should we approach this chapter? Uh, That question how do we approach this chapter? How should we approach this chapter? is really a secondary question to a much larger one how should we approach this book? Uh, that's a question that I've been answering at least in part each week as we've made our way through this. I've reiterated over and over and over again that the revelation is an unveiling. It is helping us to see what is really real, to see what is really true. Jesus pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the cover. And we see that there is more going on than we perceive with our physical eyes. But, but what does that mean? What is it we see? What is it we discover? What, what is it this book tells us? Now, not every one of us will have had the same experience uh, when it comes to the book of Revelation. Perhaps some of you, I talked about this early on in our series, perhaps some of you have been scared off by its strangeness, and and you've largely ignored it. It's just, it's too much, you're not going to go there. Others of you, I'm sure, have exerted some effort to understand this book. And if that's you, uh, you've likely, as you've studied, as you've read, as you've... uh, you've read books about the Revelation, perhaps you've come to explanations of this book that would posit a view that essentially says the Revelation provides us with a timeline of the end of history. That it maps out for us various details about how history will come to an end. Now I want to humbly contend that that is a flawed and wrong-headed approach to this book as a whole. Uh, A quick aside, we're about a quarter of the way through the book, and we've yet to encounter that at all. Uh, I want to contend instead that the revelation, far from giving us a blow-by-blow account of the future, now to be sure, it does reveal some things about the future. We will see that. But it doesn't provide us anything that resembles any kind of a a play-by-play history in advance, if you will. It's not providing us with a a chronology of the end. So if we read it, trying to find that, if we read it, trying to figure out a timeline, trying to figure out a chart, and and this follows this, follows this, follows this, we will find ourselves led astray, reading the book poorly, and we will miss the point. So how should we approach this chapter? I would suggest in the same way that we approach chapters 4 and chapters 5. I suggested there that it would be helpful for us to envision an unfolding drama with different scenes. Chapter four was a scene of the heavenly throne room where John saw a throne that is above every other throne with a glorious, mighty, powerful God of the universe, the creator of all things sitting upon it. Chapter five was scene number two where John first sees this scroll which contains all of God's purposes for history, for judgment, for blessing, and no one worthy to unopen it. And to bring them to fulfillment until he sees the lamb who was slain, who is worthy. This now we come, each scene, each vision has a specific role to play in presenting to us this unfolding story. They reveal theological truths. They prepare us as God's people for what we will encounter in life as we move forward. So in light of that, it's critical for us to understand that as we make our way through the revelation, that things do not proceed in a straightforward, chronological way. Okay, from start to finish. And we're going to see that really clearly in a few weeks when we get to chapter 11. It's going to seem like the story winds up, like we come to the end, and then all of a sudden in chapter 12, we're thrown into another vision. And so the reality is that... that instead of coming to the end we're going to circle around and we're going to come in for another view we're going to come in at another another angle we're going to discover something else so if we read revelation through from 1 to 22 thinking that we are coming to this chronological timeline a follows b or i guess a and then b and then c and then d we're we're going to we're going to misread it that's simply not what's going on here we're going to circle around and and It is, if you will, a theological collage that is communicating God's truth, theological realities, what is really true to us through these visions and through this unfolding drama. Second, I want to highlight the the fact that chapter 6 continues the vision from chapters 4 and 5. Again, chapter 4 was the throne room. Chapter 5 was the lamb and the scroll. Chapter 6 takes up the scroll. The lamb took it in chapter 5. In chapter 6... Is a story of the Lamb breaking the seals. Now, the scroll was in the the right hand of God. The Lamb was the one who was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Uh, The scroll, of course, the scroll, of course, uh, had writing inside and outside. That is, it is the fullness, the completeness of God's purposes. It was sealed with seven seals. Uh, seals were drops of, of uh, wax that were often put on the, uh, the the where the scroll came together to close, and they would be sealed sometimes with an, a, a signet ring. And until the person with the authority to open that came and broke the seals, the scroll could not be opened. That's that's part of the drama of Revelation. Only someone with authority to open it. And so, the end of chapter five, the Lamb has the scroll, but it's still sealed. It's still closed. In other words, the content is completely, totally inaccessible. And it would remain that way till it's opened. Now, really, really quickly, uh, I want to draw your attention to a structural reality in the book of Revelation. Uh, There are seven seals on this scroll, seven seals that will be opened or broken. Uh, There are other sets of seven. In fact, uh, the seventh seal is not going to be opened until chapter 8. And when the seventh seal is opened... Uh, we're going to go right into seven trumpets. And later on in chapter 16, there's seven bowls. So there's something structural going on with the number seven. I want you to bear that in mind. But chapter six is all about the breaking of the first six seals on the scroll. And uh, what we need to recognize, just the mechanics of this, is that this is not the opening of the scroll yet. This is the breaking of the seals. The scroll will remain closed until the seventh seal is finally broken in chapter eight. Okay, so... Jesus is breaking the first six seals in this chapter. Now, with all that stated, let me say uh, something about how we should approach, how we should view uh, this chapter. Uh, I'm sure all of you have have seen movie trailers before, and and I want to contend that chapter six functions in many ways like a movie trailer, a good movie trailer. We've... We've tried showing our kids some movies from, like, the 80s or a trailer for an old movie, and it's just two and a half minutes of the movie. That's a lousy trailer. But, but a good trailer does what? It, it introduces you to the main characters. It introduces you to the main themes. It, it introduces you to the basic storyline or plot line of whatever the movie is. I want to contend that chapter 6 does that for us. It is not the movie itself, but it is introducing us to... Uh, what is coming. It is an invitation to come and to listen, to look, to pay attention. The rest of the book will share the drama, will share the story. It will spell out uh, what we are being invited into here with the breaking of the seals. I want to remind you of one thing from chapter 1. Jesus said to John, uh, Write, therefore, what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. Revelation 6 does that. It will tell us about what is and what is to come. Most of it will focus on what is. The first five seals, I'll contend, are about what is. And, cha- and the sixth seal will be about what is to come, a sneak peek of what will take place later. So that's our first question about how we should approach this chapter. Think of it as a movie trailer, as a, uh, an introduction to some of the themes, characters, and the basic storyline of Revelation. Question two, how should we interpret these images? I want us to turn to the beginning of our text, and I'll read again the opening verses. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Thank you. <clears throat> Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. There are several interpretive challenges that we encountered when we turn to chapter 6. The first, and perhaps the biggest, is identifying this first rider on this first horse. Now some believe, perhaps you have heard this, some believe that this rider on the first horse is in fact Jesus. Jesus. people come to that conclusion because the horse is white. And later on in the Revelation, we will encounter Jesus uh, labeled really clearly King of Kings, Lord of Lords, on a white horse. But I want to contend that that does not mean that every time we encounter a white horse in the Revelation, that necessarily is Jesus. And certainly it will be later on. We're told that. But here, we're not told that. And so uh, I think, in fact, there are good reasons to believe that this is not Jesus on this first horse. First of all, just the mechanics of the scene: Jesus is the one breaking the seal. Now, a lot of imagery and symbolism in the Revelation is fluid, so that's in, in and of itself isn't something. But Jesus breaks the seal, and then this horse, uh, this rider comes on a white horse. But secondly, this rider is said to have a bow, held a bow. A bow was in the first century when this was written. A bow was a symbol of military power. Christ, we've just been introduced to as a lamb who was slain. He absorbed the world's evil. He let the world do its worst to him. He didn't come with a bow. Third, this rider is said to be given a crown. That's a crucial thing to note. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is seated on the throne with the one who is on the throne. He's in the center of the throne. He is worthy of worship. So he already is King of kings and Lord of lords. He does not need to receive a crown from anyone. Fourth, I would contend that the language here is, suggests that is not Christ, it speaks of a conqueror bent on conquest. That is language of conquest it is language used elsewhere in the Revelation to speak about the beast whom we have yet to be introduced to, but we will encounter in these pages. I believe that this first horse, this rider, on the first horse of the apocalypse is not Jesus, but rather the personification of militarism. As you will see in the moment, that interpretation fits perfectly with what we will encounter with the other three riders. Now, a quick, a quick aside, assuming that I'm right, there's something important for us to note. This rider on this first horse is given a crown. Why would this rider be given a crown? Why would this rider be given this symbol of authority? Well, Scripture tells us that rulers and authorities, all of them, have been placed in their positions by God's sovereign decree. God is sovereign. God is the one on the throne above every throne. And so even kings and emperors, all in positions of authority and power, exercise their power to conquer They do so only as God allows. They are not ultimately in charge. Evil is on a leash. Evil can operate only by the authorization that comes from the throne that is above every throne. Daryl Johnson writes this, in the mystery of things, this divine authorization somehow serves God's plan for bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. So I would contend that the first horse represents is the personification of militarism and the violence that comes with war. Let's read again the second seal. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. This second horse is red, the color of blood. What a way to describe uh, this this horseman, that he's given power to take peace from the earth, to make people slay each other. This horseman represents violence, not specifically the violence of war. In fact, the violence that that happens outside of war. We live in a world that is filled with violence, a world where peace has been taken away. There is incredible strife, incredible bloodshed. Years ago, we had a neighbor, uh, her son was a great young man who babysat our boys for a number of months while they lived there. She came over once, and, and I was visiting with her and asked her where they were from originally. They were immigrants. And she said that they were from Rwanda. And I don't remember what exactly I asked her at that point, but I had recently read the book, Shake Hands with the Devil, Romeo Delaire, the Canadian general's account of the genocide He was in charge of UN peacekeeping forces in Rwanda during the genocide. And I I mentioned that or asked or said that I just recently read that book. And her eyes were just glazed over with tears. Our world is full of violence. And, And we don't have to just think about far away. Even just in Quebec yesterday, this account of two young sisters murdered. This horse and his rider represent violence and bloodshed and lack of peace. We read on the third seal, verses 5 and 6. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, Six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This third horse and rider represent famine rides a black horse, carries scales, and the prices here, we may not recognize it, but what it's saying is basically that, that the, the necessities of life, bare subsistence. Two pounds of wheat costs a day's wage, like you can hardly provide for yourself. Things are so expensive. And of course, that happens in war. Food is rationed, food is scarce, and, and, and there's, a world is characterized by need, particularly those who are at the bottom end of the economic scale. Of course, wine and oil will still be available to those who are wealthy, but the, the poor suffer. For want and injustice, we read on, verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The fourth rider is given a name. We're not left to wonder who this horse is, who this rider is. His name is Death, and he's being followed by Hades. Hades is, is the word for the place of the dead, the grave. What an awful image. Death riding throughout the earth, followed by the grave, personified, gathering up corpses. The four horsemen of the apocalypse represent militarism, violence, famine, and death. In John's day... You could hear the hoofs of the horsemen pounding the surface of the globe. The world was filled with these things, war and violence and hunger and death. And that remains true today. Jesus said, John, write what is. This is what is. This is the reality of the world we live in. It remains true. The four horsemen of the apocalypse continue to gallop across our planet today, wreaking havoc, destruction, and suffering wherever they go. Now there is a question we need to stop and ask at this point. Because throughout this you may have noticed that the Lamb breaks the seal in response to one of the four living creatures crying out, come. And so who, who or what are the living creatures calling for? Some believe they're calling for John to come. But I'd suggest John is already there. He's already watching, so I don't think that's the correct interpretation. Some suggest that they're calling for the four horsemen. But why would these four angelic beings who are around the throne of God, the throne that is above every other throne, they're there worshiping? Why would they call for these forces of destruction and chaos? I would suggest that that's not what's going on either. I would contend, rather, that these are prayers. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, kingdom of, of... God, come. The whole book of Revelation is bracketed by the verb come. In chapter 1 we read, look, he is coming. Chapter 22 we will read, the spirit and the bride say, come. There is this prayer, Jesus, come. God's kingdom, come. I believe that the four living creatures are praying. They are praying for the lamb to come, for him to bring his kingdom reign to earth. And the four horsemen represent the kinds of things that happen when the kingdom of Jesus is breaking into this world that stands in resistance to Him, that stands in rebellion against Him. Jesus doesn't cause this evil or misery. It's just that when He comes, there's this great resistance, and this is what happens. All of this evil in John's day and in ours is a direct result of humanity's resistance to God, our rebellion against God, the one who sits upon the throne and the lamb who was slain. We come now to the fifth and sixth seals and with these two seals we are introduced to two key groups of people that play a role through the rest of the unfolding drama of Revelation. Fifth seal, verses 9 to 11, I'll read again. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. John speaks of the martyrs, those who had lost their lives under the altar. And we need to understand that these pictures, these images are are not to be taken precisely. Is there an altar in heaven? No, because Christ has already paid the sacrifice. He has been sacrificed for us, for all who put their faith in Him on the cross. This is just imagery. The temple was the place of God's presence on earth. And so John is using altar here uh, uh, as the place of sacrifice. It is where the souls of those who have been slain because of their faith in Jesus, their testimony uh, to Jesus, uh, that they have lost their lives. And here's their question. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? How long, O Lord? Now, we read the word avenge, and we might think about vengeance, but that's not the idea here. This isn't about uh, vengeance. This is about justice. This is about God setting things right. That is what is meant here. Not, not an angry lashing out, but Lord, how long until you set things right? How long until you bring justice, Father? There is a difference between us as God's people desiring God's justice in our world and us wanting vengeance between us wanting to get even with someone that's not what this is about it's so easy for us to cross that line we we move from a desire for God's justice to personal vindictiveness now they have lost their lives because of their faithfulness to Jesus and they are crying out how long Lord until you set things right how long till you vindicate us how long till you you establish your justice Gordon Fee says, if you don't care about justice, you need to get saved. God is a God of justice. God is a God who has promised he will one day set all things right. So we're called as Christians not to vengeance, but we can long for God's justice. Miroslav Volf, a Protestant theologian from Croatia, he writes this, it's a fairly long quote, but I want to read it to you. He says, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. These saints, these men and women who have lost their lives for their faith in Jesus, cry out, How long, Lord? How long till you judge? How long till your justice flows? How long till you set all things right? Remember, the revelation was first sent to believers spread throughout the Roman province of Asia in the year 96 uh, under Roman, Roman emperor Domitian. Already, some have faced persecution. The Apostle Paul is already long dead, having lost his head under Nero. Timothy has been or will soon be beaten to death. Uh, Antipas from Pergamum, we read about him in the letters, he has been tortured and put to death. Uh, John himself has been exiled to the island of Patmos. Suffering is breaking out upon the church. It's about to get worse. God's people will suffer, and they will even be, some of them will be killed. They live in a world filled with war and violence and famine and death. And as they look out on the landscape of the world in which they lived, it did not look like God Almighty, the creator of all things, was on the throne. The temptation was to despair, to lose faith. These martyrs cry out, how long? How long, Lord, the world is a mess. How long? How long till you do justice? How long till you set things right? The divine response is, we're told that they're given white robes. We encountered white robes as a reward for faithfulness in the letter to the the believers at Sardis. It is a symbol pointing to their eschatological reward to the, the... their salvation, that one day they will be dressed in white in the kingdom of God. But they're told that it will get worse before it gets better. They were told to wait a little longer, we read, until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Wait. More of your brothers and sisters have to yet die. This this is where we want to stop reading, is it not? I mean, this this is not the answer we want to hear. How long, O oh Lord, you gotta wait longer because more of you need to die. More of you need to shed your blood. More of you need to lose your lives in this drama that is unfolding. It's not what we want to hear. It's, it's, not, it's not God wants you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy kind of message that, that is so prevalent here in the West. No, wait, because more are going to die. We come to the sixth seal, verses 12 to 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountain. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is imagery. This is imagery of God's coming judgment. This earthquake. I mean, He describes an earthquake and then suddenly describes the sun and the moon and the stars and, and everything receding, mountains disappearing, removed from their place. And just so that we know that this, this is imagery communicating this day of judgment, uh, the, the mountains recede and they move from their place and moments later people are calling to the mountains fall on us. I mean, it's, it's just imagery to communicate this great day of God's judgment that will come. And all the inhabitants of the earth, that is, this is the second group of people. On the one hand, there are those who have been faithful to the Lamb, the martyrs under the altar. Here are the inhabitants of the earth, those who have resisted, those who reject the rule of the one who is on the throne and the Lamb. These are those who are in rebellion against God. We will encounter the inhabitants of the earth, this group of people throughout the Revelation, who continue to persist in their rebellion. They cry out, hide us from the one who sits upon the throne and from the Lamb. Just imagine a little child trying to hide from their parents. You know, when they they go behind a little tree and they close their eyes real tight and they think because they can't see their mom or their dad that they, they are hidden. These inhabitants of the earth who remain stubbornly in their rebellion against God futilely try and hide from God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden. They hide in desperation but utter futility. And they ask the question, who can stand? Who can stand? And the answer to that question we will come to in chapter 7. Only those who have been washed clean by the shed blood of the Lamb can stand. The good news proclaimed in Scripture. I don't want to speak for a moment to any here, any who are on our stream, who, who have never put their faith in Jesus. Jesus' invitation to all of us is that we would come to him and we would put our faith in Him. Every one of us, apart from faith in Him, is lost. Every one of us is a part of the inhabitants of the earth, those in rebellion against Him, which is why Christ came, It is just why He is the Lamb who was slain. He went to the cross, and He suffered what we deserved. He suffered the wrath for our sin. God's justice was achieved on the cross as God's punishment for our rebellion and sin was poured out on Christ so that all who put their faith in Him would be washed clean clean, would be purified, would be cleansed, made holy, clothed with the perfection of Christ that we could stand Who can stand? We can. Not by our own works, not because we're good enough, not because we've cleaned ourselves up, but because we've come to Christ and thrown ourselves at the feet of Christ and said, Jesus, I need your mercy, I need your grace. I turn from my my life of autonomy, my, my life of ruling, my own life, and say, I need you. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. I give my life to you. I surrender to you. All who do that. All who surrender to the lamb who was slain will receive life, will be cleansed, will be able to stand on the great day of God's wrath. So if that's you and you've never trusted Jesus, I urge you even this morning to to pray. Contact us if you need someone to help you, but pray. Surrender your life to Jesus and you can be washed clean by the blood of the lamb. You will be able to stand, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of Christ This earthquake is a symbol of God's coming wrath, God's coming judgment, God's coming justice. One day, God will set all things right. This is the final theme introduced to us in this trailer that is chapter six. God's justice will be done. God's justice will come. There will be a day when God's purposes for judgment and blessing will be accomplished through Christ. But like the martyrs in this chapter, all of us who are in Christ are called to wait. And so what does that mean for us today? Question three, what does it mean for us today? Jesus is calling us. He is calling the church to wait. Calling us to wait faithfully, to wait confidently, to wait open-handedly. For Him to bring the story that we are in to its appointed end. To bring history to its sure conclusion. We're, we're called to wait faithfully. Loving Him. Serving Him. Pouring our lives out for Him. The One who was on the throne and the Lamb who was slain. We're called to wait Confidently knowing that He does sit on the throne that is above every other throne, knowing that Jesus is worthy and will accomplish all of God's purposes, knowing that He triumphed over evil, that He was victorious through His sacrificial death on the cross, and that one day He will bring to completion God's justice. We're called to wait open-handedly, knowing that as we wait, we may well suffer we may well even lose our lives for the sake of Jesus. I don't understand, in all honesty, I don't understand how people proclaim that God wants us to be happy and healthy and wealthy in this world. I don't understand. When when it seems so clear, Jesus says, wait. There are more who need to die. You are going to, You are going to be crushed by the coming onslaught, by the resistance of those who are in rebellion against God. We in the West might not want to hear this. We might not want to think about this. But think about our brothers and sisters in communist China. Think about our brothers and sisters who have suffered and are suffering even today in other places of the world where it is illegal to name the name of Jesus, to to worship him as king of kings and lord of lords. This is real. And we are so distracted by our affluence and our desire to live a happy life now that we don't want to hear this. We, we don't want to live lives of radical commitment to Jesus that might cost us. We need to hear these words of Jesus. Wait. Wait. Wait faithfully. Wait confidently. Wait open-handedly, willing to lay down even your very life, willing to suffer for Christ. Jesus said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What a force the church could be if every one of us who has put our faith in Jesus lived with a bold confidence that we are utterly invincible until Jesus calls us home, that we can pour out our lives in faithful worship of Jesus, in faithful ministry for Jesus, come what may, that, that the world can be burning and falling around, down around us as we listen to the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse galloping around the planet, that we can live with great boldness, knowing that there is one who sits on the throne that is above every other throne, and that Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, is going to bring to fulfillment all of God's purposes, and we may have those moments where we cry out, How long, O Lord? This doesn't tell us that suffering will be easy or that we should smile and be excited about it. It says that we can suffer faithfully because we know that God's judgment will come, that one day he will set all things right. Jesus gave the revelation first to believers scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia. They were on a collision course with the Roman Empire. The crisis was about to break. The pressure was about to intensify. The suffering was about to come, way worse than anything they'd ever experienced. And Jesus wants his people to be ready. In Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karmazov, Ivan, the atheist brother, kept a notebook in which he wrote down all, all, every horrible atrocity he learned about as his notebook. Uh, it, it was his laboratory for proving the non existence of God. Listen, we can look around and see suffering and see chaos, and we might be tempted to doubt, is God really on the throne? Listen, war and violence and famine and death, even martyrdom for those who love Jesus, are not signs that God is not on the throne. They are signs of a kingdom that is invading this world and the world is feverishly resisting. God Almighty, the creator of all things, is on the throne that is above every other throne. And the slain lamb is there. Jesus has given us revelation so that we might believe. He has given us this unveiling so that we might be filled with hope Victory lies ahead. Victory is sure, but victory came through the cross. And we are called to follow in the way of the cross. The rest of the book of the Revelation will tell the story, not of Rome's triumphant story, but of God's story of triumph and victory, a story that we are caught up into as His children, as those redeemed by the shed blood of the Lamb who was slain. Brothers and sisters, things are not as they seem. The Lamb has conquered, and in Him we have victory and hope. Amen.